Spacing Radio producer Neil Hinchley. Hello. Happy birthday, buddy. Well, thank you very much, but my uh, my birthday was like a month ago. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. I, I know. I sent you a text. It's it, No, it's our birthday. Our birthday? You mean Spacing Radio's birthday? Spacing Radio is five years old, half a decade. Five years old, man. Oh, it's going to be leaving for university any day soon. Yep, that's the age that that happens for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Listen, where I come from, we grew up really fast. Right, yeah, in, in these yeah, mean streets yeah. of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you remember the first episode uh, that we did? Do you remember the big segment? Uh, I think I do. It was an interview with Jeanette Sadiq Khan. Absolutely. It was Jane Jacobs' birthday around that time, and they had just sort of approved uh, bike lanes on Bloor as well, so we did this like kind of celebration thing. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's how we came into the gate. I guess we, we've learned a lot since then. Yeah, you know, we, we always try to get a bit better at everything that we do. What's your favorite part of working on this show? Uh, well, me, I'm a, I'm a big technical guy. Uh, I love pulling out all the ums and ahs from people's interviews. Um, like all the ones that I'm saying right now, mm-hmm. maybe they won't be there later on. Let's hope. But now you have to keep them in because you're, you reference them. So we're kind of stuck with them. Well, we'll see. <laughs> Did you ever hear, I, when I was growing up, I always heard that that happy birthday song that everyone knows that it was owned by like the Disney corporation or something. So whenever someone sang some kind of happy birthday song in like a show or a movie, it had to be like some totally other song that no one's ever heard of. Yeah, yeah. It's why when you go to uh, a chain restaurant, they have to do their own stupid little birthday song with shakers and stuff like that. Right. So I I was hoping that if I could give you like some nice clean audio, Mm -hmm. that maybe you could fashion our own five-year anniversary spacing radio sort of German techno birthday song. Okay, well, you gotta hit me with something really good. All right, here we go. Birthday, 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 it's your birthday. Birthday, birthday, birthday. Oh, that's going to be just great. Thanks for giving me more work, by the way. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for making this show with me, man. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for making me make this show. (laughs) (laughs) This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from underneath a tiny paper hat surrounded by balloons, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, I speak to Dominique Russell, co-chair of the Kensington Market Community Land Trust, about the recent $3 million purchase of a property in the famous market to be maintained as affordable housing. And, in honor of the fifth anniversary of the Spacing Radio reboot, 
we thought it would be interesting to pull something from the archives of the original Spacing Radio from 2009. But first, Diana Chan McNally is a community worker with the Toronto Drop-In Network. As violent park encampment evictions continue to take place across the city with massive police force presence and dubious claims from the city about housing offers being extended to people in the parks, Diana and the Drop-In Network sent the city an alternative. The Path Forward is a guide for humanely working with encampment residents with the eventual goal of finding more stable and suitable situations for people. It was signed by 206 people and organizations. So why did City Council reject it? Stand by. Diana, I wanted to start by just asking you about the work that you do. Sure. So I am the training and engagement coordinator with what's known as the Toronto Drop-In Network. So we're an umbrella organization that oversees kind of resources and advocacy for about 56 organizations across the city of Toronto, primarily drop-ins and largely working with people who are unhoused, especially during the pandemic. Yeah, you mentioned the Toronto Drop-In Network. What specifically uh, do they do when engaging with unhoused people and that sort of thing? Well, all of our agencies do some form of work with people who are unhoused. Our drop-ins largely are for people who are street involved, whether they're living in shelters or actively living outdoors in encampments or, or in stairwells, for example. You know, in that regard, like we're really kind of responsible for a lot of the frontline interaction uh, and support, especially for people who are living in encampments and aren't intersecting with the shelter system. Um, so, you know, so much of our advocacy has really been around people who are unhoused and living outdoors because throughout the pandemic, we've been the only available resource for them uh, for many different things, including showers, bathrooms, hot takeaway meals, for example, case management support, harm reduction supplies, any number of things. And so, you know, we're partly city funded among our drop-ins, but most actually aren't and are privately funded or are parts of faith-based organizations, for example. So it's been a real struggle to kind of uphold the human rights and dignity for people who are living outside. Uh, and we've gotten some support to do that, but not nearly enough. And at this point in time, you know, when we see these encampment evictions, it is absolutely undermining the work that we do to keep people safe and well. So why we are standing up and why I've become quite vocal, I suppose, as an advocate is really on the basis of our work is, is being completely disregarded and people are being put at risk, including risk of death. Uh, and it is our mandate to ensure that people are okay. So, you know, we want to stop these evictions because it is actively hurting, even killing people that we work with. Right. And and when you speak of that risk, because the city line is constantly that this is for the well-being of the unhoused people in the encampments, they say it again and again. Can you sort of unpack that risk and what, what specifically we're talking to? Because if you believe the official line, this is an act of humanitarian outreach. It absolutely is not that. Uh, it is incredibly violent. Uh, and I, I don't mean just in terms of the police presence, uh, but how it disrupts people's lives and their ability to connect to people that they trust as well as services that they use. In the case of Alexandra Park, for example, there's a very good reason why people selected that park to live in. You're kind of in the middle of this nexus between supports on Queen West. So there's a drop-in, one of our drop-ins, the meeting place. There's also Evangel Hall down the street, St. Felix. And then up in Kensington, there are supports there as well. St. Stephen's Community House, for example, is located in Kensington. 
There's also two overdose prevention sites within a, a very short walking distance, which were well used by people who are actively living in the encampments. So, you know, the fact that they're choosing that spot was strategic. It was a means <clears throat> to be connected to the services that they're going to every single day anyway. By disrupting that, by moving people, we don't know where people are going to go always. Sometimes we actually lose track of people entirely. They go missing. And with that in mind, if you push them further away from those vital services that keep them alive, like an overdose prevention site, you are putting them at risk. People may not be able to travel that far or may not travel at all. And they may be using outdoors without additional supports, for example. So it's it's really incredibly risky to be doing this. And when the city says, you know, this is humanitarian in nature, they're not actually listening to service providers unilaterally, we're saying, don't do this. And we're being framed as part of this wily group of protesters who are against this humanitarian aid that is being provided by the city. But the reality is that, no, actually, we are funded organizations providing these vital services. And when you push people out of our neighborhoods, they disconnect from us and they can die. Right. And further challenging the official line, uh, you you wrote recently in a, in a piece you co-authored for the Toronto Star, an op-ed, when the city talks of housing, no real housing is being offered to these people in the encampments. And furthermore, only two of the Lamport residents uh, who are recently displaced were actually put into the shelter system uh, out of, uh, I think, over 20. It's ludicrous. If we're actually looking at this as a solution to address homelessness, it's an abject failure. Mm -hmm. If no one is receiving housing, then no one is any less homeless. And so out of the 68 folks who have been displaced, through Lamport, Alexandra Park, and Trinity Bellwood's evictions, 27 went into shelters, zero people were housed. So that's a success rate even of getting people into the shelter system of just 40%. And that's been lessening. And especially at Lamport, for example, we only saw two people who went into the shelter system. So it's just, it boggles my mind that they're expending the, this level of resource, let alone resources which are completely inappropriate to the situation, to do nothing other than move people to another outdoor location. Nothing about this is about addressing homelessness. It's about invisibilizing it. Uh, and without those housing offers, and in fact, there were no housing workers on site on the day of the eviction. It was strictly parks, forestry and recreation and largely police and security, as we saw. So no one was obstructed. Except actually, and I'll, and I'll point this out, is that St. Felix Centre operate a homeless respite at Lamport Stadium. The cage prevented them from going inside into the park to actually perform the outreach that they normally do to people who are living there. And they said, and they're a city funded agency, they said the city doesn't need to do this. They should not do this. So if anything, people are being obstructive from providing necessary support to people living in camps when we see these evictions happening. And so uh, by way of an alternative, you and your colleagues penned a, a sort of open letter to uh, Mayor Tory and, and the Toronto City Council called the Path Forward, which was dated July 9th. You know, it's it's co-signed by 206 organizations and people, be it, you know, advocacy organizations, uh, former mayor, former MPs, uh, artists, uh, musicians of all type. So can you tell me a little bit about the Path Forward and then we'll sort of touch on the, the main themes uh, one by one? Sure. So, you know, a path forward was really a direct response to the kind of paramilitary enforcement that we were seeing in, in Trinity Bellwoods, for example, understanding that, as I said, nothing about this is about really addressing homelessness. If 
you know, the city, and I don't agree with this, the city has voted to uphold the idea of zero encampments. If that is actually their goal, they're doing a terrible job. Right. The idea was that, you know, if you really want to reduce the number of people who are living outdoors, you need to listen to them and understand why it is that people don't feel safe going into the shelter system and to recognize that there simply just is not enough housing for people. That's inarguable. I think that's pretty clear. So until, you know, government can provide reasonable alternatives to living outdoors, they have to support people where they are. It is actually a legal obligation of the cities to uphold the right to housing uh, and, more importantly, uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, um, which, you know, human rights are enshrined in that. And this is the highest law of the land. And the idea that the city will say that we are enforcing bylaws, property laws, basically, well, that's not enshrined in the Charter. And actually, the Charter supersedes. So their legal obligation is not to ensure that people aren't trespassing on what is the city's private property, but rather ensuring that people who are unhoused have the right to life as per the charter. So the path forward is fairly comprehensive, so uh, I'm not going to make you uh, recite it chapter and verse, but uh, it, it does touch on uh, three major themes. Uh, and I was hoping to begin about just talking a little bit about the, the first theme, which is the human rights approach. You even speak of the National Protocol for Homeless Encampments in Canada, which was something I didn't even know that that we had uh, an existing document. So can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. So, you know, again, as I was saying, like human rights obviously are enshrined in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It is the highest law of this land and government is legally obligated to uphold those rights. Unfortunately, that is not what we're seeing in encampments. Uh, and what we're saying is that instead of trampling on people's rights through this enforcement and denying them the right to life and the right to housing. We need to try a better way. Again, if we're trying to reduce encampments, well, the only way that you're really going to do that is to come up with one, uh, decent, affordable, accessible housing solutions. And two, you know, in the, in the short term, you have to make people feel comfortable and okay to come into shelters. Even if you force them inside through coercion and threat through the police presence that we're seeing in encampments, people aren't going to stay. If they don't feel safe, they will leave and they will just go back into parks. So the idea, again, is to really prioritize uh, the voices and leadership of people who are unhoused in designing the services and supports that are intended for them. In that way, can we only bring people into shelters in the interim so that they feel okay and safe and supported to be there? And people will still continue to live outside. This has been the case in Toronto for actually over 100 years, if we look back at the history of the ward, which was you know close to Bay Street and Dundas. This is not a new situation in Toronto by any stretch of the imagination. And even in modern times, we've had people living in encampments for the past couple of decades. So we're never going to get to zero encampments, but we can do better if we uphold people's human rights and their right to have meaningful input into the services and supports for them. Right. And you already talked about the the sort of second major section of, of the path forward, uh, the concept of shelter space and whether or not people are feeling safe. From the people you work with and see day to day, what are they saying about the shelter space currently? It's interesting because I think a lot of the public don't understand the difference between a shelter hotel and housing. I mean, even as someone who's ever traveled, I'm sure you understand that when you go into a hotel, it is not a home. It is a facsimile of that at best. But layer onto that additional rules and regulations, which can actually make it deeply unsafe for you to be there. Things like bed checks, for example. 
which are meant to mitigate the potential for overdose. Well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because you would have to be walking in on someone in the midst of overdosing at this very random time that you're going in. It doesn't really address safety. And in fact, for people who are unhoused, who have been traumatized, attacked while they're sleeping outdoors and also in shelters, it is incredibly violating to have people walking into your room at any hour while you're asleep. Um, and so, you know, for people that makes them feel very unsafe and it's also paternalistic. There's also curfews that are in place. These are grown adults and not making curfew can mean that you lose your bed. These are very high stakes for very minor infractions. And I've said many times, you know, a rule like having no food in your room sounds simple, and not problematic, but say you're living with diabetes. You need to be able to have access to food at any time to address what could be incredibly dangerous health situation for you. So, you know, the fact that these rules are in place, but they've had no input whatsoever from unhoused people needs to change. Again, people will not feel safe to be in there if we're not addressing things like bed checks, policies around food, not having actual overdose prevention sites built in to the shelter hotel so that people have some kind of service where there is oversight and and safety provided, um, safe supply, uh, so that people aren't using street drugs that have been mixed with other things and they're being poisoned. These are basic things, I think. But apparently, you know, this this is unwelcome. I know the mayor has said that the letter itself is unwelcome and he's not willing to have a conversation about it. But again, if we're talking about unhoused people's rights holders, if we don't give them that ability to have oversight into shelter services, it's not human rights compliant uh, and it's deeply harmful. And we've seen already 56 people die in the shelter system in 2021. Right. Uh, I mean, it it seems very strange to me. If if you want to design a transportation network, you should listen to transportation planners. And if you need to have major surgery done, you'll probably consult a surgeon. So it is very odd to me that this mayor and this council seem to think that they know better than the people that are experiencing homelessness or the people that work with them day to day and and see the realities and and probably have a a much better comprehension of how the various systems work. Absolutely. It makes no sense. And, you know, as people, as civilians, as members of the public, we do expect that the services that are provided to us by governments take into mind our concerns and our feedback and in the case of shelters they're exempt from this it's not a prison they're not criminals mm-hmm. um, but is to say that you know if that's the case with shelters then why are people somehow not allowed to have any control over the services that are, are there for them uh, it makes absolutely no sense and so the, the final major section of the path forward is in regards to permanent housing. You know, the letter has some very specific recommendations and then some that are just kind of general benchmark goals to push forward. I, I mean, we all know that like nothing in the name of permanent housing is going to happen overnight, but there there doesn't seem to be a coherent direction at the moment. There is not a coherent direction. Uh, it, it seems a lot of emergency kind of housing is build is is happening right now with the modular housing, for example. But we are recommending rent geared to income housing. It's the only thing that really makes sense. And, you know, when we talk about homelessness and we talk about encampments, we often talk about chronic homelessness, but we also have to look more broadly about who is homeless in Toronto. Uh, We saw 20,000 people use the shelter system during the pandemic, 20,000 people, individuals 
no overlap, 20,000 distinct people. It's a large swath of the population. Most of those people will not become chronically homeless. But it's to say that there are a lot of people who are in deeply precarious situations. And we really have to look at why that is and act now so that we don't have more and more people becoming chronically homeless or homeless at all, frankly. And so, you know, the, the onus of kind of pushing the RGI housing is really to address that the main problem is that it's just not affordable to live in the city. And that is the main reason why most people have been using the shelter system. There's a lot of concentration on things like mental health barriers, substance use. Uh, and ultimately, that actually represents a fairly small segment of people who have moved into homelessness, especially in the past year. And frankly, most people who are living with mental health barriers, uh, who are using substances, can't manage those until they have housing, really. Um, so it becomes this cycle where the more that you're outside, the more that you're within the shelter system, the more traumatizing, the more stressful it is. And people need to mitigate that somehow. And, you know, frankly, you know, I've said this before um, elsewhere, but if you were not living with mental health barriers before you entered homelessness, if you've been out on the street for six months, a year, you will start having mental health concerns. Absolutely. I, I think that just makes sense. So, you know, we need to take the focus off of the individual and really kind of pathologize them and actually <clears throat> reflect back to the, the real issue is that we're just not realizing the right to housing. Uh, and the best way to do that is to really prioritize RGI housing now. So you've you've said that the Mayor Tory has said that this letter is unwelcome. You do, however, have the support of some councillors. I'm thinking of Councillor Matlow, for instance, uh, Councillor Layton, I believe. So what's what's next in the name of uh, a path forward? Do do you keep pressing? Do you keep looking for allies in council, or or is it you have to look for uh, other other avenues, for some kind of other olive branch? I mean, at this point, I think pressing still for a path forward is is needed because it is in my opinion, and in the opinion of the other signatories, 206 others, the only way that we can adequately address homelessness. Uh, how we actually push this letter is a good question. I think, you know, we've developed a pretty broad swath of allies, including five city councillors. I would love to have the rest of council really take this seriously. And in particular, folks like Brad Bradford and Anna Bailao, who do have growing encampments in their wards. And they've taken no stance, uh, not a meaningful one at least, about what we're seeing uh, with the police use of force in encampments and, you know, the fact that we have presented what is a roadmap for a better way of not just supporting people who are unhoused, but actually if your intention is to reduce encampments, this is what's going to work. I would like to see them actually acknowledge the fact that they will be seeing enforcement in their wards uh, and that it just, it's not okay. It's not right. You know, we, we have had a lot of organizations reach out and sign on as well. I think that's important to have more and more organizations, especially ones that are delivering frontline services uh, to unhoused people, to really step up and say, this isn't okay. We can't be ignored either. Having more um, people in leadership, policymakers supporting the letter is important as well. And certainly I'll be pushing for more of that. But as to next steps... It's hard to say. We are dealing with a very obstinate mayor who really will not acknowledge that there is incredible harm, violence being enacted against unhoused people and their supporters. Uh, and in fact, there's frankly, I'm going to call it gaslighting, uh, saying that we're instigating instead of actually following the directives of people living in encampments, which is what 
the path forward is really all about uh, following people's lead. And so we're being framed as violent, as protesters throwing things. Uh, and the reality is that you have people who are city employees like myself who don't agree with the approach who are there. We have doctors who are there from St. Mike's, uh, from Inner City Health Associates. We had an MPP who was there, uh, Rima Burns McGowan from Beaches East York. Paul Taylor, the executive director of FoodShare, and now an MP candidate was there. So, you know, framing it as just this group of disruptors who are just there to cause problems for the city is a flat out lie. I think, you know, we've demonstrated that there's broad support, but we just need the city to listen to that and to us and just trying to figure out how to get there at this moment. Well, Diana, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Okay. Thank you so much. A new spacing issue is on its way, and the theme is optimism. It's obviously been a pretty grim year and a half for everyone, but we thought it might be nice to fill an issue with a bit of good news. My bit of good news was the Kensington Market Community Land Trust securing its first property to be maintained as affordable housing. As a sneak preview, let's hear my conversation with Land Trust co-chair Dominique Russell. So first, Dominique, I would like to ask you, how did the land trust come together? So the land trust idea actually goes back to 2015 or so, or the early days of the um, Friends of Kensington Market and the gentrification battles. Mm -hmm. For me, personally, I was walking with Lauren Draney, who was an activist who was very helpful in the early campaign for Friends of Kensington Market. And... The Casa Asoriana on the corner of Baldwin and Augusta was at that moment under threat. And so I said, you know, we really should buy this building because I'd had an experience of land trust with a friend of mine who lives in central London uh, in a trust. And I was really struck by the idea that somebody, something like over 100 years ago, thought that it was important for people who, who aren't rich to be able to live in the center of London and, and created this trust. So the idea of the land trust really goes back to this, the idea of gentrification is in some ways a real estate problem and it requires a real estate solution. The idea that you can fight development, you can fight and you'll win, but sooner or later you'll lose. So you need to think about building as well. So the response to development pressures on the one hand, is is to resist, but on the other, it's to come together to build something, to be able to have a say in what goes on in the neighborhood. So Friends of Kensington Marta had several meetings around the idea of the land trust, and then there was a committee struck of volunteers and not necessarily members of the of the community not necessarily residents of Kensington Market and we you know worked out some of the ideas of what the uh, land trust could look like for Kensington and then we incorporated the land trust in 2017 we had an, an AGM since then and we've been working together ever since and very basically how, how does the land trust work so a land trust is based on this idea of holding land in common. So removing the land from the commercial equation of housing, you know, in the same way that uh, 
uh, in Canada, we have a lot of uh, nature conservancies, land trusts. So that idea of taking that land out of the commercial market and protecting it in some way. So the the land trust model allows for a really broad range of things, like what we're finding with the in Toronto, particularly the Parkdale's, who have been sort of the pioneers where the land trust buys uh, a building, a rooming house, for example, and then they ensure affordability for the long term. So it can be anything from that sort of, it could be co-op, but it can also be, you know, houses that are owned, but the uh, the land is taken out of the commercial equation. It's really important in this moment that we remove land and, and I hope eventually you know, housing from the speculative market, which has been so destructive. And can you tell me a bit about the property 54 to 56 Kensington Avenue? So it's uh, 12 units of residential and five units of commercial. It's actually a very old building, as it turns out, but there's not been sort of anything historically significant other than people living in the market. It has the traditional form of Kensington, so that was important as well for the land trust that we that we try and help preserve this particular form of Kensington, which is the commercial below and residential above. The significance of the the building itself is it's right in the heart of the market. So it's where the Jewish market started in the uh, early days. It's most recognizable part of the market for the people who don't live here, it's identifiably Kensington. There is the Mona Lisa mural. Um, you know, there's the punks that hang out on the stoop. But it has a, a real resonance in that in January 1st, 2019, when I was co-chair of Friends of Kensington Market, we found out that the tenants had received eviction notices. And we very quickly organized with Mike Layton, who actually did some door knocking, Jessica Bell, the Kensington Bellwoods Legal Clinic and, you know, really worked with a community organizer as well, Carla Davidson, and, you know, made sure that the tenants understood that this was a bogus eviction, that they didn't have to leave, that they wanted to stay, they could stay. And then we found out, you know, a couple of years later that the building was for sale. So it's really significant in that, you know, it's a significant building in, in the resonances that it has for Kensington Market. But I think it's a really significant win in that it shows the importance and the power of tenant organizing, tenants standing their ground. I mean, it's so gratifying. And I think at the meeting on Saturday, the you know, the tenants expressed this. But for me, as somebody who helped organize that fight to, to keep the tenants in their place. It's just so gratifying that they won't have to face another battle like that and that their, you know, their work has been for good, you know, and that it won't just be for them because I think it's really hard right now for tenants. They're, all these tenants are fighting for their home, which is, you know, just on so many levels unfair and unproductive and just a waste of everyone's time so that somebody can make money But having security of tenure is huge, but being able to pass on affordability is is really important. And that's, uh, to a large extent, tenants are are fighting across the city. Mm -hmm. So this, I think, is an important victory. Right, because the big news is that uh, City Council voted to give $3 million to the Kensington Market Community Land Trust, and that money will go to 
purchasing that building and keeping it as affordable housing, I believe, for uh, 99 years minimum? It will. I mean, and that's the other thing is that, in fact, like three million seems like a lot. It's an investment forever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in perpetuity. And that for me is the really significant part of the land trust movement. It just makes it so exciting for the city to look at a timeline that isn't really short. You know, a lot of the developers now and in the past, they're ensuring affordability for 30, 40, 50 years. That's nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, our timeline is, you know, 99 years. But as I said with the example from England, a trust can last forever. Can I ask, is the sale finalized? Yes, that was so that's the exciting news that we closed the sale. I can't remember exactly when we closed. I think it was probably May 31st. Mm -hmm. And it is our building. We are the owners of the building. Congratulations. Thank you. I wanted to ask in the short term, uh, what's next for the land trust? Do you have uh, some immediate kind of short-term goals that you're eyeing, another property or something like that? So we've we've been very focused on the uh, Bellevue parking lot and helping the city conceive of that parking lot as something more than just parking. Mm -hmm. So we had a visioning exercise in 2018 with the community, like what could we do here? Um, And then first with the support of Joe Cressy and now with the support of Mike Layton, we are waiting for the city to come forward with a request for proposal for the parking lot. And we're hoping that we will be the organization that's chosen. Although if we're not, it's still a win because it will be affordable housing. So we've, you know, we've worked hard at at reimagining the Bellevue parking lot. So we're, you know, we're waiting for the request of proposal for proposal to come through, but we're also looking at exploring what what we can do. So we got a lot of help from the um, Parkdale Neighborhood Land Trust, and we're really keen to uh, pass that on to other uh, communities that are looking into land trusts like Chinatown um, and Little Jamaica, where our particular model of commercial and residential, I think, will be really important because the flavor of the of those neighborhoods is connected to commercial viability as well. Like being able to have small stores, it's it's really important, um, particularly in a city where new new developments are springing up with shoppers, drug marts, Loblaws, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so there's a monolith of these big monopolies in some ways. So what we're doing in the short term is we are exploring everything that we can in terms of Kensington Market. We are working with other land trusts at the city level and working with what's now a national network as well, because the one thing you don't want to do is rest on your laurels, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the importance of of having received that help and passing it on, it's really key to us. And finally, what does affordable housing mean for the continued legacy of Kensington Market? So one of the key aspects of Kensington Market is that it's a mixed income neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that there is affordable housing. There are, you know, expensive homes and but for the the market's always been this place where people come. It's a place where you can get a start. It's a place where you can come and start something new. And if it's not affordable, then that's not going to happen. Then we're not going to have what's always been a welcoming place for new immigrants, for artists or people kind of think of as the, the characters in in the market. The the renewal, the constant renewal of young people who come through here has to do with that energy of diversity 
you know, the eclecticism of the, the market. So, you know, I think the uh, interesting things happen when people are not chasing a roof over their heads. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it will, it's essential to the creativity of, of the market. And you can find Spacing's new Optimism issue at the Spacing Store or wherever fine magazines are sold. Now, unfortunately, I'd like to take some time to recognize the passing of former guest and Laneway Project founder and executive director, Michelle Senea. It was a pleasure talking to Michelle, someone who saw the great potential of underused spaces and cities, and my thoughts go out to her friends, family, and the placemakers she inspired. Finally. We're passing a pretty big milestone for this show. For five years, Neil and I have been bringing you this show every month, with some bonus projects thrown in, and the time just flew by. It continues to be a pleasure, and I'm grateful to everyone who's stuck with us, as well as to new listeners. But Spacing Radio actually started in 2009 with host David Michael Lamb, and the format was a little different, with DML and the team creating beautiful soundscapes and on-location recordings... So we thought we'd end the show with this piece from the classic Spacing Radio by way of a celebration and a bit of a de-stressor. Enjoy. We've got one other story for you now about a building that's been abandoned, neglected, largely forgotten, and maybe even one day will be torn down. This is the world of urban exploration. People, mostly photographers, who manage to get into abandoned buildings and take pictures. They aren't there to wreck anything or steal stuff. They just want to document what are highly unusual spaces in cities. The music you're hearing is of a flute played by Jamie Thompson. He teaches flute at the Royal Conservatory of Music in Toronto, and he has an ongoing project called Urban Flute. He goes into abandoned buildings and plays music. Recently, I went along with him and longtime urban explorer Martin Reese into an abandoned factory and office building on Sterling Road in Toronto. While there, Jamie played his flute, Martin took pictures on his old twin lens reflex camera, I took pictures on my digital SLR, and at one point the three of us had a chat about urban exploration. Uh, right now we're in the... Um, we're in the clubhouse. We're in the clubhouse, yeah. It's our latest clubhouse, but uh, we're actually on um, the, uh, the, the roof of Tower Automotive, which was one of the... Uh, tallest buildings in the city and certainly even the tallest buildings before the Royal York Hotel was built in the, uh, I think, the 1910s. So um, this building was abandoned about uh, five, five, six years ago um, and is currently in, uh, owned by uh, Castle Point Realty. Uh, these people are working on uh, rebuilding it probably into condo uh, at some point. So, um, yeah, we're in this beautiful room right, right on top of this uh, roof here. And uh, the wind is howling, and uh, we've got uh, air ducts making noise and doors slamming and things in the background. So it's a very, very atmospheric place. Yeah, and it's a really sort of industrial place with old machinery and and just trashed offices. office equipment, yeah, yeah. What's the attraction of this place for you, Jamie? You play the flute in these places. You can almost sense how it's been used in the past. And, and when I play my flute and have a dialogue with the acoustic space and the ambient sound in the background, I find it's, it, it can create some magic, you know? What's 
compare playing a flute in a space like this to a concert hall or a recital room, whatever. It's sort of like badminton and tennis, I guess. You know? <laughs> uh, it's kind of the same thing, but when you when you juxtapose classical music or musical sounds and tra- like transpose it into a space like this, it I find that it you kind of engage um, on many levels. Like your senses come alive. You're listening in a different way. You're watching for security. Uh, there can be a lot of elements that kind of make it a lot more visceral in a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're fascinating places, and yet they're technically illegal places. Like we're not really allowed to be in here, right? Yeah, technically. So, <laughs> <laughs> not that that's stopped us, of course. Well, it's. A, it, I mean, it, it varies. Some places are, you know, really there's no no security and. No, uh, nobody's stopping you going in. I think it gets uh, when you find open windows, then it's really just trespassing. If you're, you know, breaking what's called according to the law of skin of the building, then it's breaking and enter. And some people will go to that extent, but in this case, I think Today it's trespassing. trespassing. Yeah. Today was just trespassing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not too bad, and as long as I think, I mean, being photographers and musicians, I mean, you have like, a, we've got these old cameras that, you know, from the 50s and 60s we're running around. It's with, almost so. like a press pass. It's almost know? like a pass. Yeah, nobody, you're inoffensive. You know, as long as you're not yeah. vandalizing and you're, you're nice, you, you don't run away and you tell people what you're doing, you get escorted off to property usually and you ask not, to come, ask not to come back, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm fascinated with these places, too, because, you know, you said this place might turn into condos. I mean, conceivably, it could be torn down. I mean, these, what we're seeing here is not here forever by any means, right? I mean, it's going to disappear. Yeah, it's all going to disappear um, or, or change into something completely different, and it would lose its character when it does that. And that's what attracts so many people like Urban Flute and myself to, to experience these places in this transitional state between being used... Uh, to being going to something else. We've seen many buildings that were destroyed after we, just after we you know, documented them or performed in them in the case of Urban Flute. But um, each one of them has something special to offer, you know, whether it's sound, music, or, or something you know, visual in terms of photography. If you think of the brickworks and, yeah. or uh, the distillery, I mean, the distillery is amazing the way it exists now, but for those of us who knew it before, it, it got all gussied up. I mean, it's in a way, it's kind of sad to see the, that original charm um, kind of vanish and, and, yeah. and morph, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a very polished place, the distillery district now, right? It's part of the urban fabric, but it's also uh, a, uh, an acceptable place to take your family, right? Yeah. <laughs> Walk your dog. Which this isn't yeah. uh, the space we're in now. No, you don't, you don't bring your kids here necessarily. No, yeah. Potentially dangerous place, yeah, too. Yeah, they're definitely dangerous. And, I mean, in the case of the Brickworks and the, uh, the distillery, which are probably two of the greatest uh, urban exploring sites in the city, um, yeah, they're, 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 it, the experience is totally different. It becomes public space again. It goes from private places to public space, but there's, there is a time period in between that's really fascinating. And that uh, is really evocative, and, and and it's to me it's also you want to pay tribute to the people that worked here and the people that that spent you know fifty sixty years of their Absolutely. lives here, and we we do it for them too, and you know and to make, and hopefully find them and share photographs with them, and and that's happened in the past where you see somebody, hey, I used to work there, wow, you guys got a shot at this, that's awesome, you know, yeah. so um, so that's yeah. kind of fun, that makes it fun. It's like it's, you're just sharing a space, you know. Yeah. It's uh, we don't we don't I, I know the urban explorers don't believe in private space as much. They don't care, you know, like they're going to go in and they're going to shoot it, and that's just the way it is. And 
Yeah, I mean, we're always, at Spacing, we're always thinking about the public space and how it's used, what it means to a city. And this is really one of the unique places that you just described. It's not, it's private, but it's, it's a transitional space. It, it, it's, it becomes public space, in a way. It does. I mean, it is privately owned, but right now it's public space. I mean, this is being used by everything from photographers to people having parties in it, people having video shoots in it. Sometimes it's done with permission. Most of the time it isn't. Um, we have, you know, people doing recordings. It just goes on. There's drug users here. Drug users. We have homeless people. We've got a band of cats, you know, uh, which we rescued one last There's evidence lots of birds living in here, lots too. birds. So, so the city, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it gets used, you know, in, in between. It's like a little community center. So. And yet I think a lot of people... Uh, wouldn't even realize these places exist. It's you know? really easy to just drive by this place. Uh, uh, yeah. Sterling Road is, is, I find, one of the most beautiful uh, city like streetscapes in the city with the with the, the sharp corner in the road and the warehouse, the, the glassed-in warehouses. And uh, but this particular building, it is really easy to miss. I mean, I have found that with uh, with Urban Flute that it, it really does explore that gray area between public and private space and whether it's playing in the lobby of the Chrysler building in New York or you know the legislative building in in San Francisco there's there's always that that element of uh, pushing the boundary a little bit, and and you, you describe on, uh, that you've got a project on your site of, of driving by an old farmhouse and just walking in and finding what looked like lives just in place, but yeah. nobody there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like that story of finding a ship that's adrift at sea, and it looks like the captain's log is just sitting out. You know, like that this family clearly had left with a week's notice, and and uh, all their belongings were kind of strewn everywhere. But you had the presence of mind to say, I wonder what's inside there. Yeah, well, I, that particular farmhouse caught my attention because uh, it was one of those classic uh, country views of the maple-lined driveway, and the trees had just been raised. They'd been, it looked like some monster had gone through and just, like, torn them aside, and they were, they were laying on either side of the driveway, and I... I just, uh, it, there's a lot of development up uh, by the core road where the farmhouse is, and, and it, it uh, really uh, captured my imagination that it, it really is transient, that, that building's definitely slated, you know, it's going to be gone. These are monuments to what was, and maybe what will be, but... It's it's history, living history too, isn't it? Yeah, I think they're like live, um, some people call them like living museums, where you really step back in time and see how people worked and lived and and uh, how people interacted as well. And you see all these, uh, even if it's been you know cleaned out, there's still enough on the walls to see how see which uh, the way uh, the way people operated within the space. Um, some other people call it death masks. You know, there's kind of the last death mask of the building before it disappears. And um, they're all special. They're all unique and they're all special and all fascinating. And of course, a photographer's dream, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And the musicians, too. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a big difference between um, playing in a space like this and going into the traditional concert hall because there's that, that risk element. There's, um, when you're in a concert hall, you're renting a seat in a way, and it's very safe. You know, like you, you know your place. The performers know their place, but here it, it morphs all of that and, and, and blurs the boundary between performer and, and audience.
Okay, that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell everyone that even though we're celebrating five years, it's not too late to hop on the bandwagon. If you have a moment, please share, subscribe, or give us a rating on iTunes as it will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West or spacingstore.ca. In the meantime, rest in peace, Michelle.